0: Welcome to the Complete Works podcast series, I'm Andrew Blackman and today our play is The Women of Troy by Euripides. It's the Don Taylor translation. The Women of Troy is a Greek tragedy written by the playwright Euripides. It tells the story of the fall of the city of Troy and the suffering of the Trojan women after the city's defeat in the Trojan War. The play follows the character of Hecuba, the queen of Troy, as she mourns the loss of her city and her family. She and the other women of Troy are taken as captives by the Greek army and are forced to watch as their city is burned and looted. The play explores themes of war, loss and the human experience of trauma. I'm lucky enough to be with the director and the cast of the 2023 Complete Works touring production. Oh, it would be great if you could introduce yourselves and the characters you play.
1: Hello, I'm Jess Stanley and I play Athene, Cassandra, Andromache, Helen and the chorus.
0: Whoa, it's <laughs> a lot.
2: Hi, I'm Leah Philly and I play Hecuba.
3: Hello everyone, I'm Carolyn Bock and I have the delightful um, job of directing these beautiful actors through this work.
4: Hi, I'm Dom Grunwald,
5: I play the soldier Talthybius and double up as the chorus. And I'm Josh Monaghan and I play Poseidon. Menelaus, and I lend my dulcet tones to the chorus. <laughs> wow, four actors for the whole of the women of Troy.
0: The prologue sets the scene, as it does in all of Euripides' tragedies. Uh, this time it's the gods Poseidon and Athena. Uh, why are such uh, important mortals uh, here to start this play?
5: Uh, it's a convention of um, Greek tragedy for the gods to be involved um, in a convention that was known as the deus ex machina or God in the machine. And it was called that because uh, they had literally a machine, a me cane, which would bring uh, a God like character out, would swing them out above the stage, which is kind of amazing for the time, I think. Um, but what's interesting is that that usually happened at the end of Greek tragedies. Um, and in this play, you get that happening at the beginning quite deliberately, I think on Euripides behalf because, uh, For this play, the beginning is the end. Um, It's the end of Troy and it sets the uh, tone, I suppose, for the whole rest of the play, which is a lament. It's a goodbye to Troy. Um, And the gods are effectively, it's quite symbolically potent because the gods have abandoned humanity because um, the Greeks in particular have shown no respect for anything that is sacred or special.
0: Uh, Jess, you yeah, come in as Athena?
1: I do, as yeah, and I think that for Athena it's become really personal because her temples have been desecrated and she's been personally insulted and for the gods it's very much about honour and pride and that's been uh, desecrated. And as Josh was saying, I think seeing the gods leave at the beginning leaves this truly empty feeling in Troy. And you can imagine in any play really, Shakespeare, a Greek tragedy, When the characters speak directly to the gods, you can imagine that the gods are actually sitting up there looking down. And in this play, it's as if they are truly speaking up to nobody because we have seen the gods leave.
0: The gods are enormously important, yes, aren't they? The power of the gods and the absolute faith that people place in them. But there's certainly a sense of betrayal from the point of the people, of uh, the women of, of the play. A sense of treachery on the part of the gods is repeated over and over and it's quickly established with Queen Hecuba now throned in dust as the gods leave there she is, centre stage. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about how oh, it's a very big theme, isn't it, the effects of war and the thoughtlessness of men. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about her perspective and where we start off the play with Hecuba. I
2: think just to tack on to the talking about the gods, though it is significant, that Hecuba, she starts... Um, speaking to the gods and as the play goes on she actually starts cursing the gods and feels their abandonment as well so i think that's just kind of important she she recognizes that as we go along um it is a big question the <laughs> effects of war i i think that that is what the play is we see the effects of war on the innocent victims we see these women who had nothing to do with the war really have to um to deal with the outcomes and also, of course, baby Astyanax, the incredible brutality of his death. It's, yeah, it's one long journey of lament. It's one thing after another and Hecuba just keeps talking about that, about the the these the destruction, the loss. It all just keeps piling on as we go through the play.
3: And yet she holds her dignity, doesn't she, right through it. She's still and, – and in that way she's still – holds her dignity as the queen but as woman in that mm. – it's just – yeah, it's quite – it's such an epic journey for her but she and she also embodies – she still clings, I think, to a slight hope, doesn't she, through Astyanax and that beautiful moment she has with Andromache and she says, you know, you go on, you keep going because you've, you're a mother and you have this child and this is obviously before –
0: yeah stolen the, uh,
3: away, but the, there's that hope of the for the future, like a little glimmer. She's holding on to that, I think, even though her is a total and utter complete loss.
0: She, she yeah, talks yeah, about that, still, doesn't she? Yeah. At, at the very beginning. Are there revelations for her? Is there a revelation for her um, at all throughout the play, or does it begin with the the knowledge that they are now slaves of the Greeks and that all is lost?
2: I don't think all is lost. Like I think I think that is, I mean, also given the context of the time and the importance of a male heir and also the knowledge that a male heir would go out and revenge their father's death in particular, so the fact that Astyanax is still alive and he is the son of the greatest warrior of Troy, um, there is hope. There is hope that, yes, this one child may come back and rebuild this fallen city. So I think that is they all cling on to that right up until he is taken away.
0: Again, just sticking with this idea of of, um, of of hope for the future, there is that wonderful exchange, isn't there, with Andromache and and Hecuba, deep into the play.
1: Yeah, Andromache and Hecuba take different sides in that argument in that scene, and that really gives the audience the opportunities to consider it from both sides. Andromache comes in and and feels that her situation is hopeless, uh, that she's lost everything because she had such an incredible life. She loved her husband, Hecuba, uh, Hector. <laughs> she's got her child, and then when once Hector's gone and she's going to be passed off to uh, Achilles' son, she feels that she's lost everything. But then Hecuba comes into debate the other side of that argument.
2: Yeah, and I think what she's talking about is it's almost the wonder and the curse of what it is to be human, isn't it? To keep hoping despite the odds, you know. That's that's the whole thing of Pandora's box. The last thing left in there is hope, and that that can be this. I mean, it's almost a painful experience. Andromache almost wants to kind of jump out, doesn't she, and say, "No, it's done. It's all. It's too much." And Hecuba's encouraging her to hold on to that last grain.
0: Well, Andromache is confronted with the the concept that she is now to be owned by one of the Greek generals as his wife, as his concubine.
1: And not only that, but the man that murdered her husband. So I think from Andromache's point of view, she'd rather be dead than have to live with uh, and be the mistress, so to speak, of the man that murdered her husband and how unpleasant that would be for her. And and perhaps for Hecuba, Hecuba has been allowed to see her children grow up with her husband, so she's had, in a way, a, a long life of happiness, whereas Andromache hasn't. Her life was just beginning, so there's a real difference in age there as well that hecuba can kind of draw on to give advice from.
2: Yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it, this is kind of jumping to something else, but I think that's also part of what we see when Astyanax dies and the the lament that happens around his death as well. That. Um, there's a real sense of you need to have lived a full life and to when it's over to reflect on all of the wonderful things you did and all that you achieved. And instead, with Astyanax, it's like all they can talk about is what could have been. So I feel like, yeah, maybe Andromache's somewhere in between there. Mm. She's, she's part way through.
1: She's looking, Andromache's looking back, but Hecuba is still somehow managing to also look forward. Mm.
0: Uh, Carolyn, having played Hecuba before and now to, to direct the play, I think one of the most amazing moments is to do with the symbol of Hector's shield from being on the inside as Hecuba, uh, giving him a burial, but also from the director's point of view about mm. the structure of, uh, of that important moment.
3: Yes, burial rites were so important you know, on the Greek side too, the, the, and and I think there's there's this beautiful moment and opportunity in the play to honour that the burial rights, and we've sort of really we have lent into that with this production about you know there's baby Anastenax and the concessions that the Greeks have given by the great arc of Hector's shield, even the Greeks acknowledge how great Hector was and and the the need to bury like the you know bury Astynax in the proper way. I think that's just such a – and it's a beautiful moment in the play where there's no winners in, in, we see that for the first time. Nobody wins in war. There we have both sides together and there's that beautiful ceremony taking place. Hector's shield being, you know, the protector of Troy. It, 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 he's annihilated but then he's protecting his child in, in death. I don't know, there's something beautiful. Hector's alive in that moment too, I feel. Um, and just the women – Burying him too, which I think is what's the women of Troy. So Mm. we're seeing that beautiful. It seems to me so significant too
0: that the last of the possible kings of Troy, the baby Astyanax, is is buried on Hector's shield. Mm. So it's such an important closure of of an empire, really, isn't it? Yeah. Which brings me to think a little bit about the Greeks here, Mm. (laughs) Um, and and the idea that no one's a winner in a war. uh, the Greeks have been here for 10 years, um, I'll get come to Menelaus, but I'm thinking about Talthybius and his journey throughout the play and, and the effect that this death uh, of this young boy has on him. Who is this guy? He's a winner, but not a winner. He's a diplomat, but not a diplomat. Can you talk a little bit about the journey of Talthybius?
4: Absolutely. Um, so we meet Talthybius uh, quite early on, and he's the sort of mouthpiece of the Greek, Greek army, if you will. Um, and he the way we've sort of looked at him is to be some yeah as you mentioned sort of somewhere between this diplomat and perhaps a more sympathetic uh, ear to the to his to the the victims of um of the war. Leah, you spoke before about there being the massive um impact that we witnessed straight away of the innocent victims of war, and I sort of think about Talthybius as being perhaps not a fully innocent but still a victim of war um and he realizes the horror he's you know he's been there for 10 years he's a he's not a commander as such he's another soldier so he's you know he's essentially fighting for someone else he has no real no real horse in the race um and he uh <laughs> um and he is essentially just doing his job and sort of seeing the pitfalls of that on a on a massive scale the impact that you know his uh doing of his duty uh destroys another another country and i think he goes on a bit of a journey where he starts to try and it's far too little and far too late but he tries to soften the blow and tries to offer perhaps some level of sympathy and uh some level of understanding to the to the loss that the women have experienced because i think he's definitely feeling a lot of loss of, uh, of his own and we talk about this idea of perhaps he uses manipulative language to sort of trick them and deceive them and I think that's definitely one way to read it but it could also be that he's really trying his hardest to make it as easy as he possibly can on both himself and on them because everyone at the point we meet them at has suffered far too much
1: And just think how many soldiers around the world today have been conscripted or forced into war against their will. You know, countries such as Korea, uh, many young men are forced to to serve two years in the military with no choice. And just think of all the wars going on right now. Talthybius would be just one of millions of young men forced to do terrible things that they would never have chosen to do. And in our production – We see a nice contrast between Talthybius and the the force, the nameless soldier that hovers in the background, and there's a real contrast between seeing a soldier that perhaps takes a bit of pleasure in the savagery of what he's gotten to do versus Talthybius.
3: It's certainly been like as directing at the revelation of that. There's a relationship between the two. Yeah, the soldier, the unknown soldier is like standing there and Talthybius, I think we've really discovered some wonderful Mm. tension there that, yes, he's got to do a job regardless of what he personally thinks of it. Mm. It's carrying out the orders and how they're military and I'm sort of just because it's sort of in in our faces at the moment is the Russians and the Ukraine. You think the Russians have already lost 100,000 men and you just think... They're just cannon fodder. It's like, I can't, like, just how many of those boys don't want to go, but because they're at that time in their lives where they are in military service, they have to go, you know? And so that that's an interesting thing about, yeah. So we're can, that seeing that in a
0: contemporary yeah. manner. We're actually seeing the horrors of war being played out on a daily basis.
3: Really relevant. Like, it's extraordinary, isn't it? That it stands the test of time. It was written back there, and here we are. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Have we learnt nothing, you know? Just it
0: seems not that every yeah. generation has to go through this journey, it would seem. Yeah. It, it makes me think about what Cassandra has to say early on mm. um, and uh, as a character who is um, cursed with um, uh, prophecy um, but cursed with the fact that nobody will ever believe her. Oh. Um, and it's a quite uh, amazingly written and wonderfully performed uh, section in the play. I often wonder about how the joy that she finds, Cassandra finds, in uh, knowing the future, the ultimate future, and what will happen to the Greeks.
1: Yeah, so Cassandra knows her fate is inescapable. There's nothing she can do about it. And so in that there's an acceptance and a joy of knowing that uh, what will happen to her by being taken by Agamemnon will lead to his destruction at the hands of his wife and family back home in a very cruel way. Uh, it also means her death, but there's she's has in a way accepted that, even though it can still hit her in the moment for how painful that is. But there's a joy in knowing that she's going to pay a, uh, play a part in the downfall of these Greek men, such as Agamemnon. She can see Odysseus's fate is truly terrible as well, uh, and also that soon she'll be reunited with her father whom she loves dearly. And so there's a, a joy and an abandonment in, in knowing that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for Cassandra.
0: Um, she does say at one stage too that, Mother, we get to bury our dead. Yes. We, we get to honour the great heroes and we get to bury them, unlike the Greeks and the fact that they've been here for ten years which is probably a nice little segue into the relationship between Menelaus and Helen and perhaps even the reason why we are here. Um, and there's certainly great arguments on both sides about Helen's role uh, in, in this play. Uh, I'm also interested in the use of the power of language where we are presented with two sides of an argument and each of the characters has the opportunity to speak It certainly at the time would have been something the audience was looking forward to. Perhaps you could just talk a little bit about that relationship and the journey of Menelaus. He's only in for a short scene, isn't he? Mm. But uh, he brings so much of the Greeks with him.
5: Yeah, and I I think, um, you know, certainly what you spoke to, what everyone has spoken to about the, you know, 10 years of war, um, he comes on as the apparent victor in that scene, having won the war. but I think it's, um, you know, it's a Pyrrhic victory where the losses have far outgained anything. Um, the the losses have far outweighed anything they've gained, and so. And he mentions a lot. He keeps coming back to the Greek soldiers, and their blood and guts have been tested and spent in so many battles to get Helen back, or at least ostensibly to get Helen back, and I think. He feels that pressure. You definitely get the sense, or I got the sense reading it, that there's this very public, as you said, an an agon where they're going to debate Helen's guilt. And I think Menelaus definitely feels a pressure from the whole Greek army because, as I just said, the, the, the pretext of the war has been that they've gone to get Helen back. It's all Helen's fault (laughs) in their eyes. And so if he doesn't punish her, um, then what have they done it for?
0: Okay. Jess, you wanted to comment there?
1: I definitely want to comment there. (laughs) I think that, in my opinion, it's almost irrelevant whether you believe Helen or not, whether you believe that she ran away with Paris off her own free will or was stolen away, because women in those times and, you know, still today very much – have so little free will and so little choice and especially in the time that this play is set Helen would not have had a choice whether she loved Paris or not and then of course there's the added element of the gods and that Aphrodite made made that match so in that you could look at it from that argument that it's fate it was fated there's nothing within Helen or Paris's control against that but I also just think that Helen had no choice, has been valued her entire life for her beauty and remembering that she's Zeus's daughter. So that's an, an otherworldly beauty as well. So I, I think a bad production of this play, you could see Helen being played uh, as a really manipulative character and sure she knows how to use her feminine qualities to further her arguments, but we also see that she's intelligent She's persuasive. Uh, she is loving, and and the Trojans all loved her. Everyone loved her. She's she's not a wicked person. She was put in an, an unwinnable situation, and then was forced to marry another person after Paris died. So she's using. She's fighting for her life. She's using everything she can to stay alive. So I th- I think she's very blameless, and hopefully. Audiences might feel some pity for her and not condemn her.
5: And I've always thought the disturbing irony of this scene is that whilst they're debating the notion of Helen's guilt, the death of Astyanax is Astyanax is taking place, like a baby's being thrown off a wall by the Greeks. Whilst they're debating Helen's guilt, and it's like so. Whilst uh, Hecuba and Menelaus are condemning Helen, the real arbiters of the atrocities. committing further atrocities as they're debating whether or not Helen's guilty. It's like I I always find that an interesting kind of of, uh, context. Yeah,
0: well-structured by uh, Euripides. Mm. Um, What does Hecuba um, uh, think, uh, given the circumstances and the outcome of this war?
2: Um, I think in terms of Helen, she upholds the patriarchal norm like she says this is what a wife is supposed to be and Helen does not adhere to that so I think in many ways she is maybe the voice of Euripides I don't know depending on what you think his perspective is but she she very much sides with the patriarchy um and and damns Helen uh even though she would know full well that women at this time had no real authority over their lives. And so, yeah, Helen being taken away, I mean, what say would, could she possibly really have had in it?
1: And also, as we know, like the patriarchy continues to thrive by forcing women to be pitted against one another. And we really see that take place in this play, which is really difficult, I imagine, to play Hecuba as a, as a modern, as any woman, really. But in this day and age, to hear a woman condemning another woman for that behaviour feels really shocking. So I think you do an amazing job of playing it. She lays down a challenge, though, doesn't she, to Menelaus?
3: Hecuba does. Go and on. And says, Radio, you said you're going to do it, so do it. And it doesn't happen. Like it's so – I just find that just such an interesting thing. But also what you said, Josh, too, about the underpinning of Asteenax is over there being – thrown off the wall at the same time, perhaps that does. There's a lovely subtext thing in Hecuba where hope has gone. So, and now it's just like, well, just smash it all down. I don't know. Like, it's just such an interesting thing. There would have thing. to be
0: a certain amount of revenge yeah, involved, little, surely, for Yeah, the, for like the, revenge, the but it shows her that your queen. Men yeah. And all, you know, taking away the passionate modern context that we, that, yeah. Yeah, that we are coming from. Um, I think it's I, it would, interesting It would be interesting From uh, Hecuba's point of view to, to get some sort of revenge v- on us
3: Vindication it. too there, For her, for her sons Her husband. I don't know I'm just i posing yeah. yeah. the question Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a really interesting stance
2: I, I do also think That there is Just to give her Kind of her dues In terms of the stance She does take I think that like you see these these characters of Andromache and Hecuba who are perfect <laughs> women.
0: That um, archetype. Yes, yeah.
2: they're, they're that archetype. And yet their lives have been completely destroyed, like yes. everything has fallen apart. And so there is a, also maybe a little bit of like we did everything right and yet... Look at this situation and then Helen who, you know, we we feel didn't do the right thing, she's going to get away with it. She's going to live happily, you know, a long, Mm. happy life, which we know kind of from the broader context of Greek mythology. So I think maybe, yeah, there's a little bit of um, the unjustness yeah. there. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, There's a couple of takeaways there. Anyone else would like, as as we finish up now, to... Think about any other takeaways that we as a modern audience might gain from uh, uh, Euripides' 3,000-year-old classic, The Women of Troy.
2: I just think the line that Cassandra says, that any sensible person must hate war, he does his best to avoid it, is kind of shockingly relevant still and we've already Mm. touched on that but I just think it really, it hits that all these years later we're still, you know, and, and Euripides was saying that to an audience that was very much um, in the midst of war and yes. um, it's just, yeah, I think it's just amazing how relevant it still is. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, on that note, thank you so much to the cast and the director of Complete Works 2023 production of The Women of Troy and thank you for listening and good luck with your studies and we'll see you for the next play shortly.